Hello and welcome to The Mayorzine, an audio magazine of vintage and not-so-vintage short fiction curated by myself, your host, Chris Mayer. And I'm narrating most of this stuff, too. While this particular version of the podcast is brand new, this has been something I've been trying to put together for a while now and was once upon a time called Audiobooks Live and actually released a few episodes a few years ago. So if you're getting deja vu, it's not a glitch in the Matrix, it's a glitch in the Matrix. Kicking this off in October means I get to have some fun right off the bat and celebrate Halloween. So this month I'll be highlighting a couple of authors you will certainly recognize and bring you a few stories about one of my favorite holidays. Don't worry, it won't be all horror all the time, but we're leaning into the theme here. And, as hashtag coincidence not coincidence, the last podcast of the month lands on Halloween itself, and I'll be bringing you an oversized issue with one of my absolute favorite stories and one you'll probably recognize immediately, even if you've never actually read it. You can probably guess what it is, but I'll let the suspense build up a little. In our debut issue, I get to kick things off with another of my favorite stories of all time. I grew up watching an amazing show by Jim Henson called The Storyteller. You can find it on Amazon, it's included with Amazon Prime, and I highly recommend checking it out. It stars John Hurt as the titular storyteller, with a puppet dog played by Brian Henson and every episode brings a folktale to life. This particular Russian folktale has stayed with me since watching Henson's amazing puppetry bring it to life. It concerns a soldier, some imps, and death. The Soldier and Death A Russian folktale told in English by Arthur Ransom. A soldier served God and the great Tsar for 25 years, earned three dry biscuits, and is set off to walk his way home. He kissed his companions with whom he had served so long and boasted of the feasting there would be in the village when he should come marching home with all his wars behind him. Singing at the top of his voice he was as he set off, but as soon as he was alone on the high road, walking through the forest, he began to think things over, and he thought to himself, All these years I have served the Tsar and had good clothes to my back and my belly full of victuals. And now I am like to be both hungry and cold. Already I've nothing but three dry biscuits. Just then he met an old beggar, who stood in the road and crossed himself and asked alms for the love of God. The soldier had not a copper piece in the world, so he gave the beggar one of his three dry biscuits. He had not gone very far along the road when he met a second beggar, who leaned on a stick and recited holy words and begged alms for the love of God. The soldier gave him the second of his three dry biscuits. And then at a bend in the road, he met a third old beggar, with long white hair and beard and loathsome rags, who stood shaking by the roadside, and he begged alms for the love of God. If I give him my last dry biscuit, I shall have nothing left for myself, thought the soldier. He gave the old beggar half of the third dry biscuit. Then the thought came into his head that perhaps this old beggar would meet the other two and would learn that they had been given whole biscuits while he had only been given a half. 
He will be hurt and affronted, thought the soldier, and his blessing will be of no avail. So he gave the old beggar the other half also, of the third of his three dry biscuits. I shall get along somehow, thought the soldier, and was for making forward on his way. But the old beggar put out his hand and stopped him. Brother, says the old beggar, are you in want of anything? God bless you, says the soldier, looking at the beggar's rags. I want nothing from you. You're a poor man yourself. Never mind my poverty, says the old beggar. Just tell me what you would like to have, and I am well able to reward you for your kind heart. I don't want anything, said the soldier. But if you do happen to have such a thing as a pack of cards about you, I'd keep them in memory of you, and they'd be a pleasure to me on the long road. The old beggar thrust his hand into his bosom among his rags and pulled out a pack of cards. Take these, says he, and when you play with them you'll always be winner whoever may be playing against you. And here's a flower sack for you as well. If you meet anything and want to catch it, just open the sack and tell beasts or birds or aught else to get into it, and they'll do just that. And you can close the sack and do with them what you will. Thank you kindly, says the soldier, throws the sack over his shoulder, puts the pack of cards in his pocket, and trudges off along the high road, singing an old song. He went on and on till he came to a lake, where he drank a little water to ease his thirst and smoked a pipe to put off his hunger, resting by the shore of the lake. And there on the lake he saw three wild geese swimming far away. Now if I could catch them, thought the soldier and remembered the sack the old beggar had given him. He opened the sack and shouted at the top of his voice, Hi, you there, you wild geese! Come into my sack! And the three wild geese splashed up out of the water and flew to the bank and crowded into the sack one after the other. The soldier tied up the mouth of the sack, flung it over his shoulder, and went on his way. He came to a town and looked for a tavern, and chose the best he could see and went in there and asked for the landlord. See here, says he, here are three wild geese. I want one of them roasted for my dinner, another I'll give you in exchange for a bottle of vodka, the third you shall have to pay you for your trouble. The landlord agreed as well he might, and presently the soldier was seated at a good table near a window, with a whole bottle of the best vodka and a fine roast goose fresh from the kitchen. When he had made an end of the goose, the soldier laid down his knife and fork, tipped the last drops of the vodka down his throat, and set the bottle upside down upon the table. Then he lit his little pipe, sat back on the bench, and took a look out of the window to see what was doing in the town. And there, on the other side of the road, was a fine palace, well carved and painted. A year's work had gone to the carving of every doorpost and window frame but in all the palace there was not one whole pane of glass. Landlord, says the soldier, tell me what's the meaning of this? Why is a fine palace like that standing empty with broken windows? It's a good enough palace, says the landlord. The Tsar built the palace for himself, but there's no living in it because of the devils. Devils, says the soldier. Devils, says the landlord. Every night they crowd into the palace, and what with their shouting and yelling and screaming and playing cards and all the other devilries that come into their heads, there's no living in the palace for decent folk. And does nobody clear them out? asks the soldier. 
Easier said than done, says the landlord. Well, with that, the soldier wishes good health to the landlord and sets off to see the czar. He comes walking into the czar's house and gives him a salute. Your majesty, says he, will you give me leave to spend one night in your empty palace? God bless you, says the czar, but you don't know what you are asking. Foolhardy folk enough have tried to spend a night in that palace. They went in merry and boasting, but not one of them came walking out alive in the morning. What of that, says the soldier. Water won't drown a Russian soldier, and fire won't burn him. I have served God and the Tsar for twenty-five years and am not dead. A single night in that palace won't be the end of me. But I tell you, a man walks in there alive in the evening, and in the morning the servants have to search the floor for the little bits of his bones. Nonetheless, says the soldier, if your majesty will give me leave, get along with you and God be with you, says the czar. Spend the night there if you've set your heart on it. So the soldier came to the palace and stepped in, singing through the empty rooms. He made himself comfortable in the biggest room of all, laid his knapsack in a corner, and hung his sword on a nail, sat down at the table, took out his bag of tobacco, filled his little pipe, and sat there smoking, ready for what might come. Twelve o'clock sharp, and there was a yelling, a shouting, a blowing of horns, a scraping of fiddles and every other kind of instrument, a noise of dancing, of running, of stamping and the palace crammed full of devils making themselves at home as if the place belonged to them. And you, soldier, cried the devils, what are you sitting there so glum for, smoking your pipe? There's smoke enough where we have been. Put your pipe in your pocket and play a round of cards with us. Right you are, says the soldier, if you'll play with my cards. Deal them out, shouted the devils, and the soldier put his pipe in his pocket and dealt out the cards, while the devils crowded round the table fighting for room on the benches. They played a game and the soldier won. They played another and he won again. The devils were cunning enough, God knows, but not all their cunning could win a single game for them. The soldier was raking in the money all the time. Soon enough, the devils had not a penny piece between them, and the soldier was for putting up his cards and lighting his pipe. Content he was, and well he might be, with his pockets bulging with money. Stop a minute, soldier, said the devils. We've still got sixty bushels of silver and forty of gold. We'll play for them if you'll give us time to send for them. Let's see the silver, says the soldier, and puts the cards in his pocket. Well, they sent a little devil to fetch the silver. Sixty times he ran out of the room, and sixty times he came staggering back with a bushel of silver on his shoulders. The soldier pulled out his cards and they played on, but it was all the same. The devils cheated in every kind of way, but could not win a game. Go and fetch the gold, says the oldest devil. Aye, aye, grandfather, says the little devil, and goes scuttling out of the room. Forty times he ran out, and forty times he came staggering back with a bushel of gold between his shoulders. They played on. The soldier won every game and all the gold, asked if they had any more money to lose, put his cards in his pocket, and lit his pipe. The devils looked at all the money they had lost. It seemed a pity to lose all that good silver and gold. Tear 
Tear him to pieces, brothers, they cried. Tear him to pieces, eat him, and have done. The soldier tapped his little pipe on the table. First make sure, says he, who eats whom. And with that, he whips out his sack and says he to the devils, who are all gnashing their teeth and making ready to fall on him, what do you call this? It's a sack, said the devils. Is it? says the soldier. Then by the word of God, get into it. And the next minute, all those devils were tumbling over each other and getting into the sack, squeezing in one on the top of another until the last one had got inside. Then the soldier tied up the sack with a good double knot, hung it on a nail, and lay down to sleep. In the morning, the Tsar sent his servants. Go, says the Tsar, and see what has happened to the soldier who spent the night in the empty palace. If the unclean spirits have made an end of him, then you must sweep up his bones and make all clean. The servants came, all ready to lament for the brave soldier done to death by the unclean. And there was the soldier walking cheerfully from one room to another, smoking his little pipe. Well done, soldier! We never thought to see you alive! And how did you spend the night? How did you manage against the devils? Devils? says the soldier. I wish all men I have played cards against had paid their debts so honestly. Have a look at the silver and gold I won from them. Look at the heaps of money lying on the floor. The servants looked at the silver and gold and touched it to see if it was real. But there was no doubt about that. I wish I had more in my pocket of the same sort. Now, brothers, said the soldier, off with you as quick as you can. Go and fetch two blacksmiths here on the run and let them bring with them an iron anvil and the two heaviest hammers in the forge. The servants asked no questions, but hurried to the smithy, and the two blacksmiths came running with anvil and hammers. Giants they were, the strongest men in all the town. Now, says the soldier, take that sack from the nail and lay it on the anvil, and let me see how the blacksmiths of this town can set about their work. The blacksmiths took the sack from the nail. Devil, take it, what a weight, they said to each other. And little voices screamed out of the sack, We are good folk, we are your own people. Are you, said the blacksmiths, and they laid the sack on the anvil and swung the great hammers up and down, up and down, as if they were beating out a lump of iron. The devils fared badly in there, and worse and worse. The hammers came down as if they were going through devils, anvil, earth, and all. It was more than even devils could bear. Have mercy, they screamed. Have mercy, soldier. Let us out again into the world, and we'll never forget you world without end. And as for this palace, no devil shall put the nail of the toe of his foot in it. We'll tell them all. Not one shall come within a hundred miles. The soldier let the blacksmiths give a few more blows just for luck, and he stopped them and untied the mouth of the sack. The moment he opened it, the devils shot out and fled away to hell without looking right or left in their hurry. But the soldier was no fool, and he grabbed one old devil by the leg, and the devil hung gibbering, trying to get away. The soldier cut the devil's hairy wrist to the bone so that the blood flowed, took a pen, dipped it in the blood, and gave it to the devil. But he never let go of his leg. Right, says he, that you will be my faithful servant. 
The old devil screamed and wriggled, but the soldier gripped him tight. There was nothing to be done. He wrote and signed in his own blood a promise to serve the soldier faithfully, wherever and whenever there should be a need. Then the soldier let him go, and he went hopping and screaming after the others, and had disappeared in a moment. And so the devils went rushing down to hell, aching in every bone of their hairy bodies. And they called all the other unclean spirits, old and young, big and little, and told what had happened to them. And they set sentinels all round hell, and guards at every gate, and ordered them to watch well. And whatever they did, not on any account to let in the soldier with the flour sack. The soldier went to the Tsar and told him how he had dealt with the devils, and how henceforth no devil would set foot within a hundred miles of the palace. If that's so, says the Tsar, we'll move at once and go and live there, and you shall live with me and be honored as my own brother. And with that there was a great to-do, shifting the bedding and tables and benches and all else from the old palace to the new. And the soldier set up house with the Tsar, living with him as his own brother, and wearing fine clothes with gold embroidery, and eating the same food as the Tsar, and as much of it as he liked. Money to spend he had, for he had won from the devils enough to last even a spending man a thousand years. And he had nothing to spend it on. Hens don't eat gold, no more do mice. And there the money lay in a corner, till the soldier was tired of looking at it. So the soldier thought he would marry, and he took a wife, and in a year's time God gave him a son, and he had nothing more to wish for except to see the son grow up and turn into a general. But it so happened that the little boy fell ill, and what was the matter with him no one knew. He grew worse and worse from day to day, and the Tsar sent for every doctor in the country, but not one of them did him a half pennyworth of good. The doctors grew richer, and the boy grew no better, but worse, as is often the way. The soldier had almost given up hope of saving his son when he remembered the old devil who had signed a promise written in his own blood to serve the soldier faithfully wherever and whenever there should be need. He remembered this and said to himself, Where the devil has my old devil hidden himself all this time? And he had scarcely said this when suddenly there was the little old devil standing in front of him, dressed like a peasant in a little shirt and breeches, trembling with fright and asking, How can I serve your excellency? See here, says the soldier, my son is ill. Do you happen to know how to cure him? The little old devil took a glass from his pocket and filled it with cold water and set it on the sick child's forehead. Come here, your excellency says he, and look into the glass of water. The soldier came and looked in the glass. And what does your excellency see? asked the little old devil, who was so much afraid of the soldier that he trembled and could hardly speak. I see death, like a little old woman standing at my son's feet. Be easy, says the little old devil, for if death is standing at your son's feet, he will be well again. But if death were standing at his head, then nothing could save him. And with that, the little old devil lifted the glass and splashed the cold water over the sick child. And the next minute, there was the little boy crawling about and laughing and crowing as if he had never been sick in his life. Give me that glass, says the soldier, and we'll cry quits. 
The little old devil gave him the glass, and the soldier gave back the promise which the devil had signed in his own blood. As soon as the little old devil had that promise in his hand, he gave one look at the soldier and fled away as if the blacksmiths had only that minute stopped beating him on the anvil. And the soldier, after that, set up as a wise man and put all the doctors out of business, curing the boyars and generals. He would just look in his glass, and if death stood at a sick man's feet, he threw the water over him and cured him. And if death stood at the sick man's head, he said, It's all up with you. And the sick man died as sure as fate. All went well, until the Tsar himself fell ill and sent for the soldier to cure him. The soldier went in, and the Tsar greeted him as his own brother and prayed him to be quick as he felt the sickness growing upon him as he lay. The soldier poured cold water in the glass and set it on the Tsar's forehead, and looked and looked again, and saw death standing at the Tsar's head. Oh, Tsar, says the soldier, it's all up with you. Death is waiting by your head, and you have but a few minutes left to live. What? cries the Tsar. You cure my boyars and generals, and you will not cure me who am Tsar, and have treated you as my own born brother. If I have only a few minutes to live, I have time enough to give orders for you to be beheaded. The soldier thought and thought, and he begged death. Oh, death, says he, give my life to the Tsar and kill me instead. Better to die so than to end by being shamefully beheaded. He looked once more in the glass and saw that the little old woman death had shifted from the Tsar's head and was now standing at his feet. He picked up the glass and splashed the water over the Tsar, and there was the Tsar as well and healthy as ever he had been. You are my own true brother after all, says the Tsar. Let us go and feast together. But the soldier shook in all his limbs and could hardly stand, and he knew that his time was come. He prayed death, O oh, death, give me just one hour to say goodbye to my wife and my little son. Hurry up, says death. And the soldier hurried to his room in the palace, said goodbye to his wife, told his son to grow up and be a general, lay down on his bed, and grew iller every minute. He looked, and there was death, a little old woman, standing by his bedside. Well, soldier, says death, you have only two minutes left to live. The soldier groaned, and turning in bed, pulled the flour sack from under his pillow and opened it. Do you know what this is? says he to death. Ah, sack, says death. Well, if it is a sack, get into it, says the soldier. Death was into the sack in a moment, and the soldier leapt from his bed well and strong, tied up the sack with two double knots, flung it over his shoulder, and set out for the deep forest of Brian, which is the thickest in all the world. He came to the forest and made his way into the middle of it, hung the sack from the topmost branches of a high poplar tree, left it there, and came home singing songs at the top of his voice and full of all kinds of merriment. From that time on there was no dying in the world. There were births every day and plenty of them, but nobody died. It was a poor time for doctors. And so it was for many years. Death had come to an end and it was as if all men would live forever. And all the time the little old woman, death, tied up in a sack, unable to get about her business, 
was hanging from the top of a tall poplar tree away in Bryan Forest. And then, one day, the soldier was walking out to take the air, and he met an ancient old crone, so old and so ancient that she was like to fall whichever way the wind blew. She tottered along, blown this way and that like a blade of withered grass. What an old hag, said the soldier to himself. It was time for her to die many years ago. Yes, says the old crone, with her toothless gums numbling and grumbling over her words. Long ago it was time for me to die. When you shut up death in the sack, I had only an hour left to live. I had done with the world, and the world had done with me, and I would have been glad to be at peace. Long ago my place in heaven was made ready, and it is empty to this day, for I cannot die. You, soldier, have sinned before God and before man. You have sinned a sin that God will not forgive. I am not the only soul in the world who is tortured as I am. Mine is not the only place that is growing dusty in heaven. Hundreds and thousands of us who should have died drag on in misery about the world. And but for you, we should now be resting in peace. The soldier began to think, and he thought of all the other old men and women he had kept from the rest that God had made ready for them. There is no doubt about it, thinks he. I had better let death loose again. No matter if I am the first of whom she makes an end, I have sinned many sins, not counting this one. Better go to the other world now and bear my punishment while I am strong, for when I am very old it will come worse to me to be tortured. So he set off to the forest of Brian, which is the thickest in all the world. He found the poplar tree and saw the sack hanging from the topmost branches, swinging this way and that as wind blew. Well, Death, are you alive up there? The soldier shouted against the wind. And a little voice, hardly to be heard, answered from the sack. Alive, little father. So the soldier climbed up the tree, took down the sack, and carried it home over his shoulder. He said goodbye to his wife and his son, who was now a fine young lad. Then he went into his own room, opened the bag, lay down upon the bed, and begged death to make an end of him. And death, in the form of a little old woman, crept trembling out of the sack, looking this way and that, for she was very much afraid. As soon as she saw the soldier, she bolted through the door and ran away as fast as her little old legs could carry her. The devils can make an end of you if they like, she shrieked, but you don't catch me taking a hand in it. The soldier sat up on the bed and knew that he was alive and well. Troubled he was as to what to do next. Thinks he, I'd better get straight along to hell and let the devils throw me into the boiling pitch and stew me until all my sins are stewed out of me. So he said goodbye to everybody, took his sack in his hands, and set off to hell by the best road he could find. Well, he walked on and on, over hill and valley and through the deep forest, until he came at last to the kingdom of the unclean. There were the walls of hell and the gates of hell, and as he looked he saw that sentinels were standing at every gate. As soon as he came near a gate, the devil doing sentry calls out, Who goes there? 
a sinful soul come to you to be stewed in the boiling pitch. And what is that you've got in your hand? A sack. And the devil yelled out at the top of his voice and gave the alarm. From all sides the unclean rushed up and began closing every gate and window in hell with strong bolts and bars. And the soldier walked round hell outside the walls, unable to get in. He cried out to the prince of hell, Let me into hell, I beg you. I have come to you to be tormented because I have sinned before God and before man. No, shouted the prince of hell. I won't let you in. Go away, go away, I tell you. Go away anywhere you like. There's no place for you here. The soldier was more troubled than ever. Well, says he, if you won't let me in, you won't. I'll go away if you will give me two hundred sinful souls. I will take them to God, and perhaps when he sees them, he will forgive me and let me into heaven. I'll throw in another fifty, says the prince of hell. If only you'll get away from here. And he told the lesser devils to count out two hundred and fifty sinful souls and to let them out quickly at one of the back doors of hell while he held the soldier in talk so that the soldier should not slip in while the sinful souls were going out. It was done, and the soldier set off for heaven with two hundred and fifty sinful souls behind him, marching in column of route as the soldier made them for the sake of order and decency. Well, they marched on and on, and in the end they came to heaven and stopped before the very gates of paradise. And the holy apostles, standing in the gateway of paradise, said, Who are you? I am the soldier who hung death in a sack, and I have brought two hundred and fifty sinful souls from hell in hope that God will pardon my sins and let me into paradise. And the apostles went to the Lord and told him that the soldier had come, and brought with him two hundred and fifty sinful souls. And God said, Let in the sinful souls, but do not let in the soldier. The apostles went back to the gateway, and opened the gates, and told the souls they might come in. But when the soldier tried to march in at the head of his company, they stopped him, and said, No, soldier, there's no place for you here. So the soldier took one of the sinful souls aside, and gave that soul his sack, and told him, As soon as you are through the gates of paradise, open the sack and shout out, Into the sack, soldier! You will do this because I brought you here from hell. And the sinful soul promised to do this for the soldier. But when that sinful soul went through the gates into paradise, for very joy it forgot about the soldier, and threw away the sack somewhere in paradise, where it may be laying to this day. And so the soldier after waiting a long time, went slowly back to earth. Death would not take him. There was no place for him in paradise, and no place for him in hell. For all I know, he may be living yet. From here we move from a man who escapes death to... a man who escapes death? Ambrose Bierce is a name you'll hear again on this podcast. Not quite a contemporary of Poe and Lovecraft, he's later than Poe but earlier than Lovecraft, his horror writing is considered to be right up there alongside the two masters. I featured a different story of his on Audiobooks Live, and it'll probably make a return for the mayorzine. Let's now join a different soldier at Owl Creek Bridge. An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge by Ambrose Pierce 
One. A man stood upon a railroad bridge in northern Alabama, looking down into the swift water twenty feet below. The man's hands were behind his back, his wrists bound with a cord. A rope closely encircled his neck. It was attached to a stout cross-timber above his head, and the slack fell to the level of his knees. Some loose boards laid upon the ties supporting the rails of the railway supplied a footing for him and his executioners. Two private soldiers of the Federal Army, directed by a sergeant who in civil life may have been a deputy sheriff. At a short remove upon the same temporary platform was an officer in the uniform of his rank, armed. He was a captain. A sentinel at each end of the bridge stood with his rifle in the position known as support, that is to say, vertical in front of the left shoulder, the hammer resting on the forearm thrown straight across the chest, a formal and unnatural position, enforcing an erect carriage of the body. It did not appear to be the duty of these two men to know what was occurring at the center of the bridge. They merely blockaded the two ends of the foot planking that traversed it. Beyond one of the sentinels, nobody was in sight. The railroad ran straight away into a forest for a hundred yards, then curving was lost to view. Doubtless there was an outpost farther along. The other bank of the stream was open ground, a gentle slope topped with a stockade of vertical tree trunks, loopholed for rifles, with a single embrasure through which protruded the muzzle of a brass cannon commanding the bridge. Midway up the slope between the bridge and fort were the spectators, a single company of infantry in line at parade rest, the butts of their rifles on the ground, the barrels inclining slightly backward against the right shoulder, the hands crossed upon the stock. A lieutenant stood at the right of the line, the point of his sword upon the ground, his left hand resting upon his right. Excepting the group of four at the center of the bridge, not a man moved. The company faced the bridge, staring stonily, motionless. The sentinels, facing the banks of the stream, might have been statues to adorn the bridge. The captain stood with folded arms, silent, observing the work of his subordinates, but making no sign. Death is a dignitary who, when he comes announced, is to be received with formal manifestations of respect, even by those most familiar with him. In the code of military etiquette, silence and fixity are forms of deference. The man who was engaged in being hanged was apparently about thirty-five years of age. He was a civilian, if one might judge from his habit, which was that of a planter. His features were good, a straight nose, firm mouth, broad forehead, from which his long, dark hair was combed straight back, falling behind his ears to the collar of his well-fitting frock coat. He wore a mustache and pointed beard, but no whiskers. His eyes were large and dark gray, and had a kindly expression which one would hardly have expected in one whose neck was in the hemp. Evidently, this was no vulgar assassin. The liberal military code makes provision for hanging many kinds of persons, and gentlemen are not excluded. The preparations being complete, the two private soldiers stepped aside and each drew away the plank upon which he had been standing. The sergeant turned to the captain, saluted, and placed himself immediately behind that officer, who in turn moved apart one pace. These movements left the condemned man and the sergeant standing on the two ends of the same plank, which spanned three of the cross-ties of the bridge. The end upon which the civilian stood, almost, but not quite, reached a fourth. This plank had been held in place by the weight of the captain. It was now held by that of the sergeant. At a signal from the former, the latter would step aside, the plank would tilt, and the condemned man go down between two ties. 
The arrangement commended itself to his judgment as simple and effective. His face had not been covered, nor his eyes bandaged. He looked a moment at his unsteadfast footing, then let his gaze wander to the swirling water of the stream racing madly beneath his feet. A piece of dancing driftwood caught his attention, and his eyes followed it down the current. How slowly it appeared to move! What a sluggish stream! He closed his eyes in order to fix his last thoughts upon his wife and children. The water, touched to gold by the early sun, the brooding mists under the banks at some distance down the stream, the fort, the soldiers, the piece of drift, all had distracted him. And now he became conscious of a new disturbance. Striking through the thought of his dear ones was a sound which he could neither ignore nor understand. A sharp, distinct, metallic percussion, like the stroke of a blacksmith's hammer upon the anvil. It had the same ringing quality. He wondered what it was, and whether immeasurably distant or nearby. It seemed both. Its recurrence was regular, but as slow as the tolling of a death knell. He awaited each new stroke with impatience, and he knew not why, apprehension. The intervals of silence grew progressively longer, the delays became maddening. With their greater infrequency, the sounds increased in strength and sharpness. They hurt his ear like the thrust of a knife. He feared he would shriek. What he heard was the ticking of his watch. He unclosed his eyes and saw again the water below him. If I could free my hands, he thought, I might throw off the noose and spring into the stream. By diving I could evade the bullets, and swimming vigorously reach the bank, take to the woods, and get away home. My home, thank God, is as yet outside their lines. My wife and little ones are still beyond the invaders' farthest advance. As these thoughts, which have here to be set down in words, were flashed into the doomed man's brain rather than evolved from it, the captain nodded to the sergeant. The sergeant stepped aside. 2. Peyton Farquhar was a well-to-do planter of an old and highly respected Alabama family. Being a slave owner, and like other slave owners, a politician, he was naturally an original secessionist and ardently devoted to the Southern cause. Circumstances of an imperious nature, which it is unnecessary to relate here, had prevented him from taking service with that gallant army which had fought the disastrous campaigns ending with the fall of Corinth and he chafed under the inglorious restraint, longing for the release of his energies, the larger life of the soldier, the opportunity for distinction. That opportunity, he felt, would come, as it comes to all in wartime. Meanwhile, he did what he could. No service was too humble for him to perform in the aid of the South, no adventure too perilous for him to undertake, if consistent with the character of a civilian who was at heart a soldier, and who in good faith and without too much qualification assented to at least a part of the frankly villainous dictum that all is fair in love and war. One evening, while Farquhar and his wife were sitting on a rustic bench near the entrance to his grounds, a grey-clad soldier rode up to the gate and asked for a drink of water. Mrs. Farquhar was only too happy to serve him with her own white hands. While she was fetching the water, her husband approached the dusty horseman and inquired eagerly for news from the front. The Yanks are repairing the railroads, said the man, and are getting ready for another advance. They have reached the Owl Creek Bridge, put it in order, and built a stockade on the north bank. 
The Commandant has issued an order, which is posted everywhere, declaring that any civilian caught interfering with the railroad, its bridges, tunnels, or trains will be summarily hanged. I saw the order. How far is it to the Owl Creek Bridge? Farquhar asked. About thirty miles. Is there no force on this side of the creek? Only a picket post half a mile out on the railroad and a single sentinel at this end of the bridge. Suppose a man, a civilian and student of hanging, could elude the picket post and perhaps get the better of the sentinel, said Farquhar, smiling. What could he accomplish? The soldier reflected. I was there a month ago, he replied. I observed that the flood of last winter had lodged a great quantity of driftwood against the wooden pier at this end of the bridge. It is now dry and would burn like tinder. The lady had now brought the water, which the soldier drank. He thanked her ceremoniously, bowed to her husband, and rode away. An hour later, after nightfall, he repassed the plantation, going northward in the direction from which he had come. He was a federal scout. 3. As Peyton Farquhar fell straight downward through the bridge, he lost consciousness and was as one already dead. From this state he was awakened, ages later it seemed to him, by the pain of a sharp pressure upon his throat, followed by a sense of suffocation. Keen, poignant agonies seemed to shoot from his neck, downward through every fiber of his body and limbs. These pains appeared to flash along well-defined lines of ramification and to beat with an inconceivably rapid periodicity. They seemed like streams of pulsating fire, heating him to an intolerable temperature. As to his head, he was conscious of nothing but a feeling of fullness, of congestion. These sensations were unaccompanied by thought. The intellectual part of his nature was already effaced. He had power only to feel, and feeling was torment. He was conscious of motion, encompassed in a luminous cloud of which he was now merely the fiery heart without material substance, he swung through unthinkable arcs of oscillation like a vast pendulum. Then all at once, with terrible suddenness, the light about him shot upward with the noise of a loud splash. A frightful roaring was in his ears, and all was cold and dark. The power of thought was restored. He knew that the rope had broken and he had fallen into the stream. There was no additional strangulation. The noose about his neck was already suffocating him and kept the water from his lungs. To die of hanging at the bottom of a river. The idea seemed to him ludicrous. He opened his eyes in the darkness and saw above him a gleam of light. But how distant, how inaccessible. He was still sinking, for the light became fainter and fainter until it was a mere glimmer. Then it began to grow and to brighten, and he knew that he was rising toward the surface. Knew it with reluctance, for he was now very comfortable. To be hanged and drowned, he thought, that is not so bad. But I do not wish to be shot. No, I will not be shot. That is not fair. He was not conscious of an effort, but a sharp pain in his wrist apprised him that he was trying to free his hands. He gave the struggle his attention as an idler might observe the feet of a juggler, without interest in the outcome. What splendid effort! What magnificent what superhuman strength! Ah, that was a fine endeavor! Bravo! The cord fell away. His arms parted and floated upward, the hands dimly seen on each side in the growing light. He watched them with a new interest, as first one and then the other pounced upon the noose at his neck. 
They tore it away and thrust it fiercely aside, its undulations resembling those of a water snake. Put it back! Put it back! He thought he shouted these words to his hands, for the undoing of the noose had been succeeded by the direst pang that he had yet experienced. His neck ached horribly, his brain was on fire, his heart, which had been fluttering faintly, gave a great leap, trying to force itself out at his mouth. His whole body was racked and wrenched with an insupportable anguish, but his disobedient hands gave no heed to the command. They beat the water vigorously with quick downward strokes, forcing him to the surface. He felt his head emerge. His eyes were blinded by the sunlight. His chest expanded convulsively, and with a supreme and crowning agony, his lungs engulfed a great draft of air, which instantly he expelled in a shriek. He was now in full possession of his physical senses. They were indeed preternaturally keen and alert. Something in the awful disturbance of his organic system had so exalted and refined them that they made record of things never before perceived. He felt the ripples upon his face and heard their separate sounds as they struck. He looked at the forest on the bank of the stream, saw the individual trees, the leaves, and the veining of each leaf. He saw the very insects upon them, the locusts, the brilliant-bodied flies, the gray spiders stretching their webs from twig to twig. He noted the prismatic colors in all the dewdrops upon a million blades of grass, the humming of the gnats that danced above the eddies of the stream, the beating of the dragonfly's wings, the strokes of the water spider's legs like oars which had lifted their boat. All these made audible music. A fish slid along beneath his eyes, and he heard the rush of its body parting the water. He had come to the surface facing down the stream. In a moment, the visible world seemed to wheel slowly around, himself the pivotal point, and he saw the bridge, the fort, the soldiers upon the bridge, the captain, the sergeant, the two privates, his executioners. They were in silhouette against the blue sky. They shouted and gesticulated, pointing at him. The captain had drawn his pistol, but did not fire. The others were unarmed. Their movements were grotesque and horrible, their forms gigantic. Suddenly he heard a sharp report, and something struck the water smartly within a few inches of his head, spattering his face with spray. He heard a second report, and saw one of the sentinels with his rifle at his shoulder, a light cloud of blue smoke rising from the muzzle. The man in the water saw the eye of the man on the bridge gazing into his own through the sights of the rifle. He observed that it was a gray eye, and remembered having read that gray eyes were keenest, and that all famous marksmen had them. Nevertheless, this one had missed. A counter-swirl had caught Farquhar and turned him half round. He was again looking at the forest on the bank opposite the fort. The sound of a clear high voice in a monotonous sing-song now rang out behind him and came across the water with a distinctness that pierced and subdued all other sounds, even the beating of the ripples in his ears. Although no soldier, he had frequented camps enough to know the dread significance of that deliberate, drawling, aspirated chant. The lieutenant on shore was taking a part in the morning's work. How coldly and pitilessly! with what an even, calm intonation, presaging and enforcing tranquility in the men, with what accurately measured interval fell those cruel words. Company! Attention! Shoulder arms! Ready! Aim! Fire! Farquhar dived, dived as deeply as he could. The water roared in his ears like the voice of Niagara, yet he heard the dull thunder of the volley, 
and rising again toward the surface, met shining bits of metal, singularly flattened, oscillating slowly downward. Some of them touched him on the face and hands, then fell away, continuing their descent. One lodged between his collar and neck. It was uncomfortably warm, and he snatched it out. As he rose to the surface, gasping for breath, he saw that he had been a long time underwater. He was perceptibly farther downstream, nearer to safety. The soldiers had almost finished reloading. The metal ramrods flashed all at once in the sunshine as they were drawn from the barrels, turned in the air, and thrust into their sockets. The two sentinels fired again, independently and ineffectually. The hunted man saw all this over his shoulder. He was now swimming vigorously with the current. His brain was as energetic as his arms and legs. He thought with the rapidity of lightning. The officer, he reasoned, will not make that martinet's error a second time. It is as easy to dodge a volley as a single shot. He has probably already given the command to fire at will. God help me, I cannot dodge them all. An appalling splash within two yards of him was followed by a loud rushing sound. Diminuendo, which seemed to travel back through the air to the fort and died in an explosion which stirred the very river to its deeps. A rising sheet of water curved over him, fell down upon him, blinded him, strangled him. The cannon had taken a hand in the game. As he shook his head free from the commotion of the smitten water, he heard the deflected shot humming through the air ahead, and in an instant it was cracking and smashing the branches in the forest beyond. They will not do that again, he thought. The next time they will use a charge of grape. I must keep my eye upon the gun. The smoke will apprise me. The report arrives too late. It lags behind the missile. That is a good gun. Suddenly he felt himself whirled round and round, spinning like a top. The water, the banks, the forests, the now distant bridge, fort, and men were all commingled and blurred. Objects were represented by their colors only. Circular, horizontal streaks of color. That was all he saw. He had been caught in a vortex and was being whirled on with a velocity of advance and gyration that made him giddy and sick. In few moments he was flung upon the gravel at the foot of the left bank of the stream, the southern bank, and behind a projecting point which concealed him from his enemies. The sudden arrest of his motion, the abrasion of one of his hands on the gravel, restored him, and he wept with delight. He dug his fingers into the sand, threw it over himself in handfuls, and audibly blessed it. It looked like diamonds, rubies, emeralds. He could think of nothing beautiful which it did not resemble. The trees upon the bank were giant garden plants. He noted a definite order in their arrangement, inhaled the fragrance of their blooms. A strange roseate light shone through the spaces among their trunks, and the wind made in their branches the music of aeolian harps. He had no wish to perfect his escape. He was content to remain in that enchanting spot until retaken. A whiz and a rattle of grapeshot among the branches high above his head roused him from his dream. The baffled cannoneer had fired him a random farewell. He sprang to his feet, rushed up the sloping bank, and plunged into the forest. All that day he traveled, laying his course by the rounding sun. The forest seemed interminable. Nowhere did he discover a break in it not even a woodman's road. He had not known that he lived in so wild a region. There was something uncanny in the revelation. By nightfall he was fatigued, footsore, famished. The thought of his wife and children urged him on. 
At last he found a road which led him in what he knew to be the right direction. It was as wide and straight as a city street, yet it seemed untraveled. No fields bordered it, no dwelling anywhere. Not so much as the barking of a dog suggested human habitation. The black bodies of the trees formed a straight wall on both sides, terminating on the horizon in a point, like a diagram in a lesson in perspective. Overhead, as he looked up through this rift in the wood, shone great golden stars looking unfamiliar and grouped in strange constellations. He was sure they were arranged in some order which had a secret and malign significance. The wood on either side was full of singular noises, among which, once, twice, and again, he distinctly heard whispers in an unknown tongue. His neck was in pain, and lifting his hand to it, found it horribly swollen. He knew that it had a circle of black where the rope had bruised it. His eyes felt congested. He could no longer close them. His tongue was swollen with thirst. He relieved its fever by thrusting it forward from between his teeth into the cold air. How softly the turf had carpeted the untraveled avenue. He could no longer feel the roadway beneath his feet. Doubtless, despite his suffering, he had fallen asleep while walking, for now he sees another scene. Perhaps he has merely recovered from a delirium. He stands at the gate of his own home. All is as he left it, and all bright and beautiful in the morning sunshine. He must have traveled the entire night. As he pushes open the gate and passes up the wide white walk, he sees a flutter of female garments. His wife, looking fresh and cool and sweet, steps down from the veranda to meet him. At the bottom of the steps she stands waiting, with a smile of ineffable joy, an attitude of matchless grace and dignity. Ah, oh, how beautiful she is! He springs forward with extended arms. As he is about to clasp her, he feels a stunning blow upon the back of the neck. A blinding white light blazes all about him with a sound like the shock of a cannon. Then all is darkness and silence. Peyton Farquhar was dead. His body, with a broken neck, swung gently from side to side beneath the timbers of the Owl Creek Bridge. Thank you for joining me for this inaugural issue of the Marazine. We'll be releasing an issue every Sunday, so pop us in your RSS feed to stay notified when the new one goes live. We also have a Patreon, which gives patrons early access and downloadable files to listen to offline, as well as behind-the-scenes stuff, a Discord server, and a bonus story every month not included in the podcast itself. The link is in the description, so be sure to check it out. Next week brings the mastery of Edgar Allan Poe along with a fun look at Halloween in a little town called Maryvale. See? Not all horror all the time. Both The Soldier and Death and An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge are in the public domain. This production is copyright 2021 by Christopher James Mayer. Thank you for bearing with me while I figure out how not to be awkward while talking about these stories, and I'll catch you next week.